listen. Since the beginning, we've been the women out and always beating the system. Never seen a bride like this before. Scowling, surly, and head busting. <laughs> you see, Banu Gashasp was a warrior, a hunter, meant to be out on adventures with her younger brother, saving the kingdom and slaying demons. Not getting married, being a wife. But her combination of bravery and beauty threw men into distress. She could fight and she looked like that. <laughs> Banu Gashasp, ancient Iranian hero, is one of the few women to have an entire Persian epic dedicated to her exploits. These are just a few moments in the life of this badass gal. <laughs> and learn, little brother. Sister, how'd you do that so skillfully? It barely moved. Father Mars, little brother. Hunting is in our blood. One day, you'll finally tap into your instincts. He did. Her little brother became a great hunter and fighter, thanks to his big sister's training. Their father explicitly forbade them to journey outside their territory, but they're teenage heroes, so they went ahead anyways. On their way home, they came upon a stranger on the road. Halt! You will go no further. Who will tell us where we can and cannot go? Some old man in the middle of the road? Move aside, beggar. I'll teach you a lesson about insulting your elders, young man. <laughs> you are no match for me, old man. I will teach you humility now. How do you like this lesson? Daughter? Daddy? You nearly killed me. I can see your sword skills are developing quite nicely. Mm, child, she nearly killed her father in a sword fight. 
I heard having teenage daughters was hard, but goodness gracious, get this girl on the battlefield quickly. And that's exactly what her father did. How she loved it. It's so beautiful out here. I love the smell of battle in the morning. One day, after killing her opponent, Banu removed her helmet. You know, it gets stuffy and all that armor. All of her hair tumbled out of that helmet and into the breeze, fluttering in the wind. A random soldier from the opposing side saw the glorious sight of Banu taking her helmet off. He devised a plan. I'll go to her, tell her she's my woman, and take her home with me to be my wife. Oh, child, let's see where this goes. Hey, hey, you woman, you are very beautiful. Come with me and be my wife. Who tells me what I must do? I do. I am your husband now, woman. He made a fatal mistake. He reached for her arm, intending to grab her and pull her along. She cut that man clean in two, the long way. Of course, that episode drew worldwide attention. And next thing she knew, three princes from India were riding into town to compete for her hand in marriage. The final score, one prince dead, one prince lethally wounded, and the last prince. He ran as far as he could from that wild Banu Gashasp. <laughs> But to her father, there was only one issue with Banu consistently beating, maiming, and sometimes killing her suitors. Well, who was she going to marry? Her father was concerned, but he devised a little game to choose his daughter's husband. At a hero's banquet, over 400 of the kingdom's best fighters gathered to celebrate a recent victory. Somehow, the topic of conversation turned to Banu. Have you seen Rustam's daughter on the battlefield? Her sword strikes with such precision. I saw her take down a man three times her size one time. Her bravery knows no limits. And her hair? Have you seen her take her helmet off? All that hair flowing in the breeze? Those dirty hips. <gasps> And then the warriors began to drunkenly sing in praise of Banu's beauty and bravery. Her father, Rustam, had heard enough. He put all the fighters on a carpet and then pulled the rug out from under them. Only one man remained balanced and standing. He passed the test. He would be Banu Gashasp's husband. The wedding was announced. (laughs) 
you've gone and done what? I, who have fought by your side, who has bested you, you have left me no choice but to marry this, this, who even is this man? It's time you marry. To be a wife and mother is the highest honor for a woman. The wedding was one thing. But the wedding night? Now that was another. Come, my bride. It is time for me to have my husbandly way with you. Do you think you will rule me now? Why, yes, silly woman. I am your ruler. I am your husband. And he grabbed for her arm to force her? Wrong move. Stay in that corner and shut up. Your incessant crying disturbs my sleep. You will stay that way until you come to your senses, husband. And that was how her husband spent his wedding night. Bound, gagged, and held hostage until dawn. Mm. But he learned a very important lesson about being married to Banu. A lesson about marriage itself, perhaps. My wife, it is an honor to be your husband. Your presence allows me to behold greatness and victory. You, great fighter, please untie me and let me restore my honor in your eyes. No one tells me what I can and cannot do. Not even you, husband. If I tell you once, I tell you twice. Talk to her nice. Leave all that aggressive stuff on the battlefield. Approach with humility, because arrogance gets you nothing, except cleaved into two, the long way. Banu and her husband had a son, a strong child, who grew to become a strong hero thanks to his mother's training. Brave people, gals, guys, and everybody in between. How are you doing? Have you checked in with your heart? Welcome to another episode of Vanguard of the Viragos, where we revisit the heroines of human history in order to learn from this hidden archive of treasures. I'm your hostess with the mostess, Chelsea D. I'm currently in Washington, D.C., and I want to uplift that I'm on the ancestral lands of the Nacotchtank, Anacostan, and Piscataway peoples. Though I do not know their names, I want to uplift the hands and lives that have made art that has lasted through the centuries and is still with us today. I thank you for your contribution to human history. You are not forgotten. 
As a, a slight accessibility check-in, you might hear some sirens in the background. Um, just so you know, we are in the midst of a raging pandemic. So in case you hear that, that's what that is. This is the portion of the show where I chat with a very special guest. I just like to tell stories. I'm a creative who is addicted to diverse representation and storytelling for the stories we tell mold the people we become, I think. But my guests on this show are folks who are actively studying, preserving, and making history. Yes, making history. These are the real heroes, in my opinion. And today's hero is Dr. Maggie Beeler. Welcome aboard. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. It's I'm blushing at that intro. It's awful lofty. <laughs> I hope to live up to that intro. <laughs> How are you doing? I am doing I'm doing really well and it's always a good day for me when I get to when I just get to talk to historians and researchers who are doing such amazing uh, work that is so inspiring. I walk away from these conversations totally infused with energy, which is something that has not been happening on a lot of Zoom calls. So this is very, <laughs> this is very dope to me. <laughs> I'm very glad to be here. <laughs> I am as well. <laughs> Woo. All right. So let's jump right in. Can you share with us uh, your area of expertise? You know, what era do you study? Where? And what drew you? What drew you to this? Sure. Um, everybody loves to talk about themselves, right? <laughs> <laughs> So I am currently uh, teaching at Temple University here in Philadelphia, and I do want to acknowledge that I'm both living and working on the ancestral lands of the Leni Lenape people. And um, I teach in the Greek and Roman classics department, which is the study of ancient Greece and Rome. And I'm trained as a field archaeologist. So I approach it from the perspective of looking at physical things, the art and the architecture and um, archaeological artifacts. And I got my PhD just outside of Philly here in classical and Near Eastern archaeology from Bryn Mawr College. So I actually, most of my research is looking at the intersection or intercultural exchanges, contacts among people in the ancient Mediterranean. And I've um, excavated as a field archeologist, primarily in Greece, but also in the United Arab Emirates outside of Dubai. And so I'm really interested in looking at specifically as you know, the name of my degree kind of implies the interactions among what we now call East and West and kind of interrogating those categories. Is that really a useful way to look at how ancient societies were interacting? So. Mm -hmm. And my research and teaching, I guess I would say that they focus on social identity is kind of the easiest way to say it, but specifically social difference and how those were negotiated. And obviously, because I'm an archaeologist in the past and with physical things, how how art and things like that um, were used so that we can kind of interact with each other beyond just exchanges. So not looking at trading necessarily as just an economic practice, but also a community building practice and something that is implicated in um, identity formation and structuring relations among people. So that stuff really excites me. I really like things. I'm a material girl, I suppose. I, I mean, 
oh, I, I, I told you, I told you, the, I asked the first question and then these things, they wander, wander into the wilderness of imagination. But I am just, I got enough. Okay, excavating. Excavating mm-hmm. is a word that I use, you know, as a theater maker, I'm always like, oh, I'm excavating the, you know, the, the stories of X, Y, and Z. But like you are literally doing excavations. I mean, can you, can you talk about like, what is it like at a dig site? What is it, what is it like to, I don't, I don't even know. Are you, do, are you getting your hands in the dirt? I've only seen movies. Like, I don't know like <laughs> what it's really like out there, you know? Yeah. It's definitely not Indiana Jones. I don't get to punch <laughs> any Nazis, unfortunately. <laughs> and it's really, it's not what attracted me to, archaeology I will say that at the outset I actually hadn't been on an excavation when I got into the PhD program because I was working a lot and I didn't have time to take off you know a month and a half to go dig in the field so I didn't know what to expect when I got there I knew what I wanted the end goal to be I knew we were supposed to find stuff right (laughs) so uh, but one thing that I wasn't prepared for is how incredibly unglamorous it is it is really really hard physical strenuous work in really challenging physical conditions I mean you dig first of all it's really hot let me just start with that Uh, Mm because you dig you dig during the summers when professors and field school students have time and in the Mediterranean at least in Greece and in Italy um, that is the hottest time of year so you're digging it's you know 90 degrees so you want to wake up really early you start excavating at six or seven if you can and then you finish by one or two p.m. is when you want to wrap up because the heat of the day just gets so incredibly um, bad at that time. So <clears throat> actually, when I was in the UAE in the Emirates, the field season was in December and it was still in the 80s and 90s during there. So just to give you a sense of that. So first of all, it's hot. Obviously, it's dirty. <laughs> it's dirty, but I like that part. But it's also it's kind of like really physical work. So you're swinging big picks, you're shoveling dirt, you're putting it in wheelbarrows and you're moving that or you're putting it in big baskets and you move it out of the way. You take it every bucket full, you put it through a sieve, like a a mesh sieve and you have to shake that, which is hard because you have all the dirt on it to try to see if you can find any little small finds like coins or something like that. And so that's all very physical work that you're doing. And then also, you know, you're bent over, you're squatting. So you kind of have to be prepared for physically what you're going to do. But then also add to that the challenge. um, If you're not, you know, a field school student or a workman, if you are an area supervisor, which you kind of work your way up to, um, that was mostly what I was doing was recording, documenting and recording everything that happens. So I'm, I'm not leaving my students and workmen to work for themselves. So in addition to shoveling and moving buckets and et cetera, et cetera, I also have to be writing down every single thing that happens, measuring every single thing, wow. photographing, drawing every single little thing, shooting things in uh, with the GPS so that you know exactly where it is on the grid. And that's because every time you dig, every time you excavate, it's actually, you're destroying the context. Archaeology is destruction, which is weird, right? (laughs) Because you're constructing these historical narratives with it. But it's your job to make sure you document everything that happens so that 
in case you miss something, in case I don't know that this shell is sticking out of, you know, the side of the trench in a certain way, because it means on the next trench, I'm going to find something. But, you know, whatever I record in my notebook as an area supervisor, then the director of the excavation, that's what he or she makes into the final site report to present to, you know, the world. So because it's science, it's and we don't own anything when we go in there. It's it's it all belongs to the country in which uh, you are excavating, and so you have to give a report to them. And you want to make sure that you've done right by science, by humankind, and especially by your hosts, right? So that part, when it's really really hot, and you're like, okay, the soil here, I think it's slightly red. You got like sweat dripping down. <laughs> So it's actually, it's a lot harder than it looks, but I will say I've, it's kind of like a team sport too, because you're all on the team of science. You're all, you all have a common goal. And I'll tell you, I think that archaeologists are a, a special type of academic because we have this physical component, but also it's this really unique social experience because you get to know somebody, your friends and colleagues and your professors really, really, really well when you share a bathroom for six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Talk about building community. Yes. So, I mean, I think it's great. I love it. I miss it. Uh, but I don't want to act like it's it's all fun and games. It's really, really, really hard work. And that actually is what makes it so rewarding, I think, because you're really doing something. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Can, can, do you remember like the first object you ever found? The first? Like the first yeah. You know. I'll tell you my first and my best, and then I'll tell you the most uh, important thing I ever found because they're wildly different. Dope. The, yeah. <laughs> the first thing I ever found actually wound up being from the time period that I wrote my dissertation on. So I specialize in the early Bronze Age, which was 5,000 years ago. Wow. And it was before writing, before literacy, before even, you know, monumental architecture and stuff. It was all very small scale. And my dissertation advisor, um, Jim Wright, who I left New York to come to Bryn Mawr to work with him because he has, well, I adore him. He has such a, a unique outlook on everything. And he also had an excavation at the time that had a really important early Bronze Age level. Now, I didn't know I was going to become obsessed with the early Bronze Age, but this is one of my favorite memories because the first thing I ever picked up that was ancient, that I was allowed to touch, like on the ground, like they let me touch it, was um, <laughs> turned out to be, I said, Jim, what is this? And he said, oh, you know, it's 530 or something in the morning. We're up there waiting for the work to come. And he said, oh, that's cool. You found that. That's actually what we call an archaeology diagnostic, which means that the shape of just this pottery fragment, because of the way it was shaped, you could tell it was part of this particular type of cup that's really distinctive and was only made during the early Bronze Age. He was like, oh, that's really cool. You found a sauce boat shirt. Good for you. Um, so that's the first thing I ever found. Wow. I know. The coolest thing I ever found, I found a hundred Roman coins at the Roman port of Lecchio near Corinth, which was fun, but it had nothing on the gold and pearl, I think it was an earring or maybe a finger ring. It was kind of smashed up, um, piece of jewelry that was found in a, get this, Crusader era, so 13th century CE, burial inside of a Byzantine church at Corinth, which was really cool. But that's got nothing on 
the most important. <laughs> okay, here's this one. That's what I'm so proud of. This is the one that I hooked my students with. Uh, it was a gem in a middle Bronze Age cemetery on the island of Crete, which is really cool because it's in between Egypt and mainland Greece. And so a lot of cool stuff happens in Crete. It's popping. And this, <laughs> it really was, especially in the Bronze Age. And so this gemstone is not only made of carnelian, which is imported from the Indus Valley, mm. like 4,000 years ago already. They're in contact on this, on this island. It's not tiny, it's huge. Um, but it's also inscribed with an undeciphered language called Cretan hieroglyphic. Wow. So you can't really top that. <laughs> wow, that's... Okay, well, now I got to know more about, like... <laughs> You know the interaction. You you mentioned um, a little bit earlier. You know how you're what you're interested in is how ancient societies interacted, and in Crete is just a, a fabulous example of where we're seeing the these cultures intersect. And and I mean, what have you? And this is a big question. I don't know how to pare it down, but like. What insights have you gleaned about how cultures interact? You know, like, do we do it through, is it through our stuff and our arts in our media or is it fashion or food oh, yeah. or yeah, how, how do people, is it like we see today, you know, transportation and, you know, what are, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it kind of... Uh, it's both. It is a lot like today, actually. Uh, but it's also, we're talking about, you know, pre-monetary economies, right? We're talking about, um, at least in the time period that I wrote my dissertation on, it's pre-literate. And even when you are into the later Bronze Age, when we actually can decipher the scripts, they don't, you know, they're not uh, stories, they're not narratives or epic poetry. It's like Maggie sent three sheep <laughs> from her village <laughs> to the palace, but not to the palace. They say to the goddess, right? Because it's, you're not sending it to the king who's exploiting you. You're sending it for safekeeping for the goddess, right? Um, so, yeah, but it's, it's this, it is a huge question that you're asking, which is about, um, you know, how does material culture, I just threw that out there like it's a given fact that yes. we negotiate our identities through stuff. Now, from my perspective as an archaeologist, and I think we do, um, but let me defend that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll give you an example. So um, it's, it's not just skin deep. It's not just I carry this uh, designer handbag so you know what class I belong to. That's kind of a modern example of it. And that is happening in antiquity, but it goes deeper than that. So we like literally negotiate our relationships with people. Consider, for instance, the gift. You give a gift to somebody to build and maintain your friendship and your goodwill, or uh, even with somebody in your family. And even if it's not a big or expensive gift, it's the meaning of it. And you personalize it when you wrap it. So this is like one example of how objects kind of mediate our relationships but the way that archaeologically i've been approaching it in the context of intercultural contact um is i'll, I'll use the example in in my dissertation what my dissertation does all scholars are like in my dissertation um, <laughs> <laughs> let me see if i can make this quick and, and impactful so in my dissertation i look at this one data set and they're called seals or stamps and if you think of like um, medieval kings, how they had the gold signet ring and they would stamp the envelope with red wax and that would seal it and say, this belongs to the king or it, or it makes it official. Like this is a message from the king. So right. the, 
the first ones of those in Greece pop up in the early Bronze Age, the, the time period that I study. And that technology of stamping stuff has been already used for thousands of years in Mesopotamia in the Near East already by kings. But what's weird is that even though these communities in the early Bronze Age Greece, they're getting all of this stuff, they're getting new materials and new ideas and new technologies such as sealing, which is really a revolution. Um, I call it a record-breaking technology because what they're doing is they're stamping lumps of clay that they've put on containers, boxes or pit boy, um, ceramic vessels or crate storage containers, and they're stamping it. And that had previously, be before I took a crack at it, been interpreted as kind of the way the king is using his signet ring. This belongs to the person who's storing them. But what I found digging deeper, I brought together all of the seals for the first time um, all across mainland Greece. And I noticed that not only are they always being used in the context of food storage and feasting, but we don't have any evidence for kings or chiefdoms or elites. And that's how we've always interpreted it interpreted the early Bronze Age using this data set. There's a really important data set that I looked at, seals. So these little objects, they have designs engraved on them. And they're all slightly different, but they look pretty much the same. They're all slightly, slightly different, but it seems like there's really a concerted effort to make them look like one group, one homogenous group. And what's super interesting, at least in the best preserved archaeological context that we have for them, at this site called Lerna in southern Greece in the Argolid, and it's near Mycenae, where the late Bronze Age Mycenaeans, you know, the stuff of Homer, Achilles, and Agamemnon and stuff. Um, at this site at Lerna, what we see is rather than one person stamping all of the vessels that are being stored in this area, and we know they're being stored there for communal feasting because they're found together in a room with all of these vessels and food remains, you know, plant seeds, stuff like that. Um, what's really cool, though, is that the number of individual seals is exactly the same or corresponds roughly, I think there's a couple off, to the number of vessels, bowls, or cups that are being stored in that room. Which means, the way I interpreted it, is that people each have their own seal, and they're each stamping their contributions to a feast, to a communal feast. And so the reason that that's important is that whereas previously people had said, oh, this is this is evidence for complex society, civilization with a big C, and it's being imported from Mesopotamia. You know, isn't that cool? And I said, well, wait a minute, let's look at how they're actually doing it. And what's notably absent is one person controlling all of it because mm. seals are a control device in Mesopotamia. So what's more interesting to me is that these seals, the designs on them are a group emblem, right? And that group emblem is being displayed in the context of communal feasting. Talk about community building. That's every time right. you eat, you're building bonds with people, right? And so I think food counts also, by the way, as material culture. <laughs> mm -hmm. Artifacts are things you make, but ecofacts in archaeology are things like animal bones and plant remains. And they tell you about diet, and, and that's a, it's a human material interaction. But I think that um, getting back to this idea of how these materials, how art specifically, is negotiating our social identities and, and why that's relevant to intercultural contact. These small-scale communities 
um, in the early Bronze Age, they're importing the sophisticated technology selectively. They're not bringing in the whole social hierarchy. They're not like, and bring your king with us. We're going to start doing things your way. And so what you're actually seeing at the start of the story of ancient Greece with like, maybe you've heard of it, at the start of the story of big C, you know, European civilization, you don't see exploitation by elites. You see common people, you see commoners cooperating, and it's just as sophisticated, and it is complex society, and it is civilization, and it's done in a way where collectively, as a group, they are managing it, instead of having one person come in and do it. So it's just, it's a way that reframes also the whole way we tell the story, right. which which is like what you do, right? That's, that's <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's all, I've spoken with um, other guests on the show who who reference how how um, um, you know just how our understanding of the class the classics and, and civilization with the big C is somehow you is sometimes used to condone exploitation and to to um, solidify a certain way of of moving through the world and so it's so fascinating to me when I meet people who are like but actually at the origin point of the thing that you're using to condone exploitation there actually wasn't any exploitation it's 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 something that like again I go back to this idea of receipts you know we're we're we're, we've got the receipts of uh of these these legacies and these histories well that's why I laugh when you say receipts, because these are literally receipts, these stamped pieces of clay. <laughs> these are literally receipts. I mean, so it makes me laugh. <laughs> but also, getting, getting back to that, um, this idea of uh, people who are misusing, abusing the classics. Mm-hmm. I won't say misusing because actually the classics has a long history, and this is something I've lectured on and written on, and this is the way that I teach. At Temple, I teach a class every semester called Race in the Ancient Mediterranean. And the way that I teach it, yeah, the way that I teach it is by talking about these white nationalist terrorists, such as the ones that we just saw at the Capitol, who, you know, one of them was wearing an ancient Greek helmet. Like, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And so mm-hmm. that's the question I ask my students is, why are, why are white supremacists so invested in ancient Greece and Rome? And what are we not doing to stop it as classicists and archaeologists? You know, our, our discipline is being implicated in these uh, unscientific, illogical, and hateful ideologies. And so what can we do to kind of combat that and, and to make not just classics, but also archaeology and honestly, academia, the ivory tower, how do we make it just a little bit less ivory, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that, that actually leads to another question I have, which is like, what's a common myth or or preconception about uh, your area of study that you, you'd like to dispel, you know, about oh, archaeology or e- about... <laughs> that's so easy. If you talk to any person who's been in my classroom at all, it wasn't aliens. And it's actually kind of racist to think that aliens are the only ones who could have built the pyramids when we're talking about <laughs> Africa. Come on, guys. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah, Fascinating. just because white people didn't do it doesn't mean it's not civilization with a big C. And it definitely doesn't mean that it wasn't that it was aliens. It was not aliens. I'm not saying there aren't aliens. I'm just saying that they didn't build the pyramids. That's all. <laughs> That's my <laughs> That's my main thing. <laughs> and I feel passionately about it. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. It's just like, let me just clear this up. Let me just clear yeah. this up. 
Um, which is very helpful though, because it is a pot. It's a notion. Wasn't there a whole show called like ancient aliens? Oh my God. That and guy, I swear. <laughs> enth alien enthusiast is too credible a title for that guy. <laughs> I mean, it is definitely something that I think makes the rounds in a lot of, you know, mainstream media. I've seen it on my Facebook timeline occasionally, like, mm -hmm. okay, great. So I'm glad you heard it here, folks. You heard it here. <laughs> Uh, so what are some of, you talked about archaeology as destruction or there being an element of destruction yeah. inherent in doing these, these digs. Um, and I was speaking with another guest who was talking about um, her role as a conservationist and, and trying to figure out a new way to to do this more respectfully you know how to how to take objects or bodies I think about mummies I think about mm -hmm. you know how burial sites you know yes. have been because one of the places where I used to go the Met in New York City was like you know you go to the, the Egyptian wing and you see all these beautiful things which really spark your imagination and are necessary to build curiosity but like how do we do it in a I saw yeah. I saw somewhere in your work the term new approaches to cultural heritage preservation right um, which I think is just awesome like <laughs> it's just like I feel like sums up basically what I'm what I'm saying but like what is your insight into how that could happen or yeah that's um I'm so glad that you're speaking to a conservationist too I'm not uh, a, a conservationist but I did co-organize a research symposium at the Penn Museum here in Philadelphia which is just right up the street from me called um what was it from Amphipolis to Mosul new approaches to cultural heritage preservation and so what we did is we invited a, a really dynamic group actually of what we called emerging scholars. So um, underrepresented, let's say, and younger scholars who are doing new groundbreaking work. And that includes methodological and theoretical new approaches. And what I mean by that is um, different technologies. So it's like 3D scanning and photogrammetry. I mean, they, you can really democratize archeology span in the study especially of art, if you can 3D print and disseminate these artifacts so that you can actually get a sense of, of what they are. If you can you know, have a 3D print thing and, and have the physical object, then you don't have to necessarily buy a plane ticket, fly to Greece, right. go right. right? And of course, nothing will ever compare to actually studying the real thing, but in this sense of how do we make archeology span more accessible and inclusive, how do you engage with people it's these kind of ways of doing things. And that includes, as I said, also uh, theoretical approaches, which, you know, I think of post-colonialism or, or decolonized archaeology. These are just ways of interrogating the kind of power structure um, of the way we do archaeology, because archaeology is actually um, very colonial, if you think about it. I'm American. I fly over to Greece and I say, I'm, I've arrived. I'm the expert. Let me step into this excavation and dig up your past remains for you. And then I'll tell you Greek people what it means, right? Uh, I've excavated graves before, you know? So there's a, there's a big responsibility that comes with all of that. And so it's, you have these new, really cool approaches to archeology span now that I, I can't say I belong uh, I'm not part of them. And so that's why I was organizing the symposium to kind of give a venue 
um, for people who are doing this really important work, there are people, I mean, 3D scanning is not even, digital humanities is is really taking off. And I think it's really wow. important. And especially now that we're all, you know, it's a, it's a plague and we're all in our houses and we're doing everything with Zoom. I think it's mm-hmm. even more important now than ever. And you have things like just, I think this month, I think in January, yeah, the Athenian Acropolis Museum, you can now tour its galleries virtually. And so you don't have to buy a plane ticket. Yes, yes, ma'am. And you don't have to buy a plane ticket now uh, to go see that stuff, or you don't have to rely on, you don't have to pay tuition for a class for someone to teach it to you, right? So I think that there are all of these cool ways with cultural heritage preservation, and, and I should probably define what that means really quickly. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> right? Oops, my bad. Um, <laughs> cultural heritage is, uh, it's such a broad term, but it's its its basically heritage is is your roots and so when you're talking about cultural heritage you have some people who are of the mind that all human history belongs to all of us and these are the people who are fine with the parthenon marvels remaining in the british museum even though greece has constructed an entire acropolis museum right next to where these architectural reliefs they were not portable they were hacked right off the building right Mm. um when the Ottoman Empire was occupying Greece, so the Greeks didn't even have a say in the dissemination of their cultural heritage. And so preservation of things that belong to certain cultures is, um, you know, putting them in a museum certainly preserves them, but also you're displaying it then only to the people who can afford to go, you know, to England, right? And that's not everyone. The Met is my happy place, trust me. Uh, But can, (laughs) can the Met tell the story of ancient Egyptians without putting somebody's ancestors' bodies on display. Do we need to right. see the mummies really? Right. You know? So these are these are the big questions and I legit have no answers about culture or heritage. But that's actually why uh, I will say, wait, I need to circle back. One of the things that attracted me to archaeology is that I realized because our data set is necessarily incomplete that not everything is preserved through time things degrade and break down so because we don't we we can't say the answer is b so we're judged more really on the quality of our questions and i think that's such a fascinating place to hang out (laughs) it's very like humanities right but so um it's these it's these big questions that archaeology gets to ask of the past and the way that we ask them is 100% informed by the present. And so you have to constantly have new approaches. There should be a new approaches volume every year, right? Because <laughs> there are new ways to think about things. It's not just technology. It's also, you have a person whose brain sees things differently because of their lived human experience. And so um, centering people is something archeology span does. It's not actually about the things that we're preserving. We're preserving cultural heritage. We're preserving the story of human history. Um, Whether you subscribe to the idea that all history is human history or whether you're a little bit more careful, like most archaeologists are, was saying, actually, that belongs to the Greek people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, what... That's such a that's such a uh, such an awesome that's such an awesome way of looking of looking at the past. I mean, for you, Maggie, what questions are you asking of the past? Oh yeah, yeah. What's always haunting you? 
or oh yeah what haunts me a lot um i did graves i told you no <laughs> well you know well. <laughs> yeah well you know this is such a good question um and you could ask this of anybody i, I think it's really great i i would mm. say that the kind of my north star this entire time and it's because personally professionally politically all of that i'm about diversity equity and inclusion and i've always sought out you know jobs that are doing that. I worked in, for open access repositories to make scholarly works free, freely available. Mm. I worked in accessibility to make, yes, it's really important and it is happening, but it's slow going. I'm working, you know, converting course materials for disabled students. Even before I started academia, I was a legal secretary um, on Wall Street for a women's rights employment discrimination firm. So I'm all about <laughs> the human experiences liberation. And, and so the way that that, I really did not think that that would factor into archeology span in any way. I thought I was escaping the world, going into the past and being able to go, okay, never mind, goodbye, <laughs> and just focusing yes. on the past. But again, what I've, what I've learned studying archeology span is you can't, you can never, there's no such thing as a neutral observer. There's no such thing as unbiased science. The history, the word history comes from the ancient Greek historia, which means inquiry or question. So you always approach something with a question. You're always looking for something. And even when you're digging, you excavate very carefully and you, you record everything you find because you don't know what's going to be relevant. But at the same time, you're there going, what time period is this? What were these people eating? What were they doing? And so the way that inclusion and, and diversity had influenced my research. I already explained my dissertation thesis where I'm looking at, I use collective action theory uh, to kind of conceptualize civilization with the big C and social complexity beyond hierarchy. We can have non-hierarchical complexity in civilizations. We can have more egalitarian kinds of human social groups. And so I think that that has to do a lot with my own background. Um, classical archaeology especially is a it's money. It's it's the oldest field, right, <laughs> in the ivory tower, and it's a very much moneyed field. And I honestly, when I applied, for, I worked so hard to get into the PhD program, but I honestly didn't think it was going to happen. It was kind of this like pipe dream because who gets to do this? Who gets to do what I do, right? Right. Right. So, but I was, I had some dissonance really with my colleagues in this field because they're from a different socioeconomic background than I am. And so I kind of, that, the previous administration, the way that things were, I was kind of, the questions I started wanting to ask of the material were relevant then and today. I was kind of like, why are we like this? <laughs> why can't we yeah. tell, why does everything we everything we talk about is about violence and domination and exploitation? Can we tell a story that isn't about competing exploitative elites? Because that's what history is. The way we tell it is this king did this and he smote this person. He slaughtered this guy. And these great men histories are just, here's this dude, here's this dude, here's this dude. And I was thinking, mm. is there a way that we can access common people in this time period specifically that fascinates me? because it's such an important, it's the start of the story of ancient Greece. And I think we're telling it wrong. So what happens if I try to find normal people? And my you know, big main argument is that common people, regular people are actually the main engine of 
human history and of social change. And we actually, we tell a story of co compete competition, but actually cooperation is what characterizes if there is any universal human experience, it's cooperation. We survive the ice age by cooperating. We survive modern day society because we agree to drive on a certain side of the street, right? That's cooperation. And so I think the way that we're telling this story is just like what you're doing with this podcast, which is why it's, it's such a delight to be here because uh, you're doing what I'm doing with a different mm -hmm. medium, right? In a different context, but it's the same goal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow, that's so, you know, y'all really get me sometimes. And I never bring tissues with me. So it's always a really inconvenient. Uh, that's really gorgeous. That's just really a gorgeous sum. Um, wow. I'm a lucky gal. Uh, so let's dig in. You're a hard worker. <laughs> that's what it is. It's not just luck, man. It's hard work. Everyone works hard. <laughs> It's, and it's so worth it. It's so worth it. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about Viragos. Were you familiar with Manu Gashasp before uh, Not I at all. emailed you out of nowhere? <laughs> well, I'm so glad you did too. I, you know, it's always great to learn something from people. And I thought, oh man, I have to look this up. And I'm really embarrassed that no, I don't know this ancient thing. <laughs> wow. So I listened. I listened with great interest. I really, I just want to say really quickly, I loved the way that you brought her story to life because that's what you're doing by translating it into this medium. And it's, it's not just like the quality of the production, everything. It's, it's the way you tell the story too. And like I said, that's what I'm doing. I'm, you know, archaeologists and historians tell stories, but I love the way you brought her to life. And so I listened before I looked her up. And I'm glad I did, because I feel like I got a lot more <laughs> out of the way oh, that wow. you told the story. Yes. Wow, that's a huge compliment. <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, so how? I mean, what did you? What did you think of her story? Like, what this like head busting bride? You know, <laughs> is this is this yeah. common? Is this common? This depiction uh, of women in this in this. I don't know, region area time or, you know, how did you feel about the, yeah, this character? Yeah, I was obviously fascinated by her. And I, I have to start by just full ignorance of the time period <laughs> the region. I know, yeah. of course, about um, if it's before Jesus, I kind of know. And I really know the further back in time away from Jesus you get. So <laughs> This is really fascinating, though. And I have Persian friends who every time they tell me anything about their culture, I am just floored. Farsi is such a beautiful language. Persian culture is so beautiful. And it has such deep roots. And in fact, some of my colleagues um, who work on Mesopotamia uh, point to Elam, which is ancient Iran, um, as the source of most of the things that we think of big C civilization, literacy, monumental architecture, blah, blah. It was happening also in Iran, but, you know, were archaeologists working in Iran at the time that these narratives were being written? Have they been able to work there since the revolution in the 70s? That really impacts, you know, who tells the story? God, I can't get away from the storytelling, sorry. <laughs> who tells the story? <laughs> and when did they uh, collect the data? And, you know, that's just it with what... I liked the way that you told her story because it's a check for scholars like me who study the past that these are real 
people with fully fledged lives. They had tragedy, they had loss, they were badass, they you know, they they messed up sometimes. They had and desires. Yeah, fully, all of that, that are not always available to us archaeologically that we can't always access. And it's important to remember that we're talking about people and these aren't just data points for us to construct an argument so that we can get publications, so that we can get tenure. These are people. And so I really, it was nice for me because it was kind of a reality check where wow. I realized that that's, that's the, the people, the human experience, that's what drew me to archaeology. And I think mm -hmm. that... I actually prefer to see it from modern day perspectives and have modern day translations than, than to the scholarly process. But I, I also want authority when I'm talking about it. So I went ahead and did the PhD thing. <laughs> Copy that. Well, is there a, is there like a, a Virago from history who you'd want to hang out with? You're going to think I'm so lame oh, because no. this is such an obvious answer from an archeologist, but Hatshepsut. suit no. was, yeah. Tell me more. Yeah, so you've, you've heard of her though. She's the, most people have, she's the female pharaoh in ancient Egypt. So uh -huh. most people know who she is and that's why I'm a little embarrassed for this. So I have to say, um, and I, I don't, honestly, I don't even know what I would ask her, but the reason that I feel like I have to be around her, <laughs> I want to be around her so much is because we don't know who she is getting back to the way that her story is told because she was a woman and that is not what Pharaohs were, right? She was this, uh, she broke the mold and her successors were ashamed of the fact that there was a female pharaoh and they practiced this thing called damnatio memoriae, which is Latin basically for damned memory. And, you know, they oh. chopped up, they hacked up her reliefs and erased her name or wrote over it, which is something they did in Egypt a lot, but it was targeted harassment when it comes to Hatshepsut. Mm. Mm. Um, but so even what is preserved to us, though, we don't really know her because it's these idealized royal representations of pharaoh and in some of them she even has a beard right because masculinity being a man being a strong man that was the template for power and what i think is so cool about her is a we know her name like thousands of years later and that is so incredibly rare which is why i love this podcast um but <laughs> it's not you're highlighting for instance the fact that i didn't know uh, today's character you're highlighting the fact that there are more of these stories than we think actually mm -hmm. So I love her because she broke the mold. And I think that I don't, I don't, I wouldn't understand her, right? I wouldn't be able to speak her language, but I just want to see how she moves, how somebody who knows she is favored by the gods and the center of all communication. But I'm also the person who's like obsessed with the tip pops that are just Kamala Harris getting off a plane and into a limo. You know, like I'm obsessed with them uh, because she's this new female embodiment of power. Yes. We've yes. I don't sense that stepsuit, right? Like I think that actually I take it back. I want to hang out with Kamala and Dr. <laughs> Joe. <laughs> I can't even lie. The well, you've got the spectrum. You've got the you've got the continuum. Yeah. They're all on the continuum. And I need to look into the chipset because I did not know um I did not know that much about her. Oh yeah. I need to look in. I need to look in. Again, it's just a groundswell, just so much right beneath us. Right beneath us. Women of um, power are out here, man. <laughs> come on. We've got the receipts. Yeah, got them. <laughs> well, this has been truly 
um, just a treat from from start to finish. And, and I just want to thank you so much, Maggie, for for agreeing to come on the show. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's beyond a treat. It's it's. I'm really honored, and it's delightful. I'm, you know, I I'm not used to just being asked to talk about myself. So that's really great. I, I hope that I did justice to the topic because I really think this is such a worthy and cool project. And it is something that I will be sharing with all of my friends and my nieces and my nephews. And so I applaud you. Thank you. Community building. Thank you. <laughs> all about it. And thank you to everyone for listening to another episode of Vanguard of the Bragos. This conversation and more resources will be on the audio podcast and website. So check us out. It's a whole world. Uh, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. And always remember, we are all on the vanguard of a changing time. Be the difference. Lead with love. Last one didn't sound too furious. <laughs>